Amen. Please have a seat. And would you uh, join me in your hearts as I pray? Lord Jesus Christ, what an extraordinary thing it is that you have come to be among us. Thank you for what you've been teaching us through what you wrote through your servant Peter. For his insight into his Savior and friend Jesus. And for the call to to suffer well and to know joy in the midst of that suffering on the way to glory. Thank you for the way that you bonded Peter and Paul together even in the first century to share a to share a division of labor and taking the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles and rejoicing together in the hope that we have and singing one song together to the church. I pray that as we go to your, your words given through Paul in the letter to the Romans, that you would unite our hearts to, this, to the hearts of those servants. Unite our hearts to the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and makes him alive to us now. And Lord Jesus, by the power of the Spirit who lives in us, make these words come alive for us. Make them jump off the page and be more than just words in a book. Let them be words straight from our Father's heart to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to spend a few minutes with you today in the first few verses of the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. For four chapters in the letter to the Romans, in this magnificently crafted letter, Paul has been helping Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome understand that they together stood before God's docket, before the dock before God, before his judgment seat, and they were guilty. God had brought suit against the human race. He necessarily was going to bring punishment and execution against us for our sins and our crimes against him and against his law. And for four chapters, Paul talks about what God has done so that we don't have to bear his wrath. He talks about how one faithful Israelite had come forward and had agreed to pay the penalty for us. And it laid his life out in sacrifice for us, offering an obedience to God's law that we were not, not only not capable of, but not even interesting, interested in offering. So that we could be brought back into right relationship with God's law by faith. By faith first, the faithfulness first of the son who obeyed and went to the cross for us. And then we in turn receiving that gift. And in fact, there's a bit of a theme given to the whole of, of Romans in Romans 1.17 where Paul says the just by faith will live. And what he's doing in chapters 1 through 4 is telling us how it is that we can be just by faith so that he can get to chapter 5 to tell us how we can live. And here's where his passion really comes out. And in chapters 5 through 8 of Romans, Paul is telling us what it is to live now that we have been justified. Let me, 
Let me begin reading. We're not, uh, we're not putting up verses for you. I hope you perhaps might have a scripture that you can look at yourself. Having been justified, therefore, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, there's something on the far side of that. Peace with God. It's a great thing that God has said, not guilty because the son became guilty. Now you are free to go. But you know, it wouldn't be entirely good news if we were just sent away from that courtroom scene with our sins paid for, debts canceled, prison we don't have to go to, and we could just go live. Because you know what? Before too long, we'd be right back before that bar of justice because we'd mess up. You know what the recidivism rate, I love that word, what the recidivism rate is for criminals who get out of jail? Recidivism means going back to jail. You know what the rate is? I don't either, but it's really, really high. (laughs) And you know, there are certain people who, even though they never get convicted, they wind up in court all the time because they just live on the edge of the law. That would be our story too. If the judge just said, I'm done with you, have a nice day. But this courtroom is a little bit different. This is a courtroom in which we're given peace. And all I knew to, all I know how to, the only way I can think to communicate that sense of peace is to ask you to imagine the judge. This judge has not just been measuring your law by some cold and personal standard outside of himself. The standard by which you and I have been measured wanting is his own character. He has necessarily been at war with us. He has necessarily been angry and wrathful against us. And what happens when he places our sin on his son and punishes it there is that his wrath turns to joy. He no longer is angry with us, but he finds satisfaction. In us, Paul uses an, a very interesting word back in Romans 3.25 when he talks about what God had done so that he could be both just and justifier. He set forth Christ as, the Greek word is hela sterion. Sterion means simply place. Hela is the beginning of the word that we get hilarity from. As in God loves a cheerful giver. It's the word that Paul uses there. It's a place where God is made cheerful. It's a place, Jesus becomes a place where God's frown turns to a smile because what happens is he is satisfied with the son's sacrifice for us. So not just some cold code could be satisfied, but the father's own heart could be satisfied. And now he could look at Andy and he could look at even Jeffrey with a smile and not a frown. And so what happens at this court, instead of him just saying, see you later, have a nice day, good luck, I hope I don't see you back in my court, is the judge comes down from behind the bench and he takes off his robes of justice 
And you see his casual wear underneath. And he says, you know what? You need a home, don't you? Let's go to my house. You need a name, don't you? You take my name. You're absolutely impoverished, aren't you? You need an inheritance. My family estate is yours. Let's go. We find that as we walk away from this courtroom, we have alongside us one who was a judge, but who now is a father. A father who has given us his name, his estate, and has set a place for us at his table. And the table that we go to today is a reminder that we've got a place at his home. But wait, there's more. He's not just like any other dad. There are dads and there are dads, aren't there? Here is a father who offers not just a place, but access. Look at what Paul says next. Having been justified, therefore, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have come to have access, a way in, by faith, into this grace in which we have come to stand. We have access. What's he talking about? The only way I can tell you what I think he means is to tell you about Michael Card's father. Michael Card didn't have a bad father, but he had a busy father. Card tells the story of a, a working father who was a physician who, for whatever reasons, whether he didn't feel like he worked hard enough, didn't make enough money, or whether he was just uncomfortable with other people, when he would come home from work, he would walk right past his family and into his study and shut the door and go back to work. And Michael Card talks about spending hours outside his father's study, just looking at the light underneath the study door and looking underneath the door and seeing his father's shoes under his desk and just wishing he could be there with his dad. That's not the kind of father we have. We have a father who gives us access. We have a father who doesn't come home at the end of the day and shut the door and leave us on the outside. We have a father who just loves to be with us. Now, some of us have horrendous images of a father that we have to overcome to imagine this kind of father. Others of us have good pictures of that. I've got a pretty good one. Now, my dad was, was um, he was Depression era, so he never knew how to say it. He never could bring himself to mouth the word, son, I love you. Son, I'm proud of you. And I, I remember a very testy moment when I was in high school and I was feeling too big for my britches and we had a little argument and I just went off on him about how oh, you never say this, you never say that. And it almost ended in fisticuffs. But after a while, I found myself reflecting and he still would have beat, my, beat me up. But fortunately, we never found out. But on the far side of that, I found myself thinking about my dad, and I realized even though he had never been able to articulate it, he showed it 
all the time. He was always there for my sporting events, my choir, singings, everything I did that he could be there for, he was there. And he used to take me out to the ball field and for hour upon hour throw batting practice to me till his arm was about to fall off. And he'd come home and he would fill our house with the smell of Ben Gay or, <laughs> or absorbing Junior or, or wintergreen alcohol. And I, even now when I smell those smells, they remind me of my dad. Well, that's our dad. Our dad doesn't go in the study and shut the door and leave us on the outside imagining what it's like to be with them. Our dad wants to be with us. Now, it's, it's necessary in Christian teaching for us to, to tell one another what we're supposed to do with Christian truth. But sometimes it's not about here's what you need to do. Sometimes it's just about hearing that you have a father. And you have a father who loves you. And you can figure out what to do from there. But the challenge today is simply to believe that because of what Christ has done on the cross for you and me, the judge has taken us home. The judge has become our father. The judge has taken pleasure in us and conferred his name upon us, his estate. And not only that, He's offered us his time. He's offered us himself. I was kind of like this for my first son. My first son had four legs and a tail that wags. He was a 95-pound Irish setter named Larry. Almost the coolest dog who ever lived. Second only to your dog. My last year in seminary, Sherry and I lived in this tiny little apartment over top a dry cleaner. And my papers were always late. It was sort of a spiritual discipline. God put me in the lives of my seminary professors just to challenge them to be gracious. And I, rem- I remember several times working on a paper, and I would only be working on this paper because it was past due. And Larry would be lying on the floor on the other side of the room and just decide, you know what? He's working too hard. It's time to go play. And he would get himself up and he would just, he would launch himself across the room. Fortunately, it wasn't a really big apartment. And he would just throw himself across my lap and just so that my hands couldn't do anything. And then he would, and he would just turn this, this big old smiley Irish set her face in my face and you go (laughs) dad it's time to go play (laughs) honest it never occurred to me to throw him off and say Larry I'm too busy when that dog got in my face and breathed that doggy breath on me I just said you know what it's time for a break I just delighted to be in his presence and if I sinner that I am selfish you know, selfish individual that I am, running on deadlines and everything else, would have that simple, automatic delight in my iris setter being in my face saying, Dad, let's go play. Can you imagine the heart of the one who made heaven and earth so that people like us could rule on his behalf? And when he saw that we were going to throw it all away, sent his very own son, 
out of his own love for us, as Paul is going to say in, in, in later on in this very paragraph, when we were in his enemies, when we were weak, when we were sinful, when we were ungodly, when he would send his son after us, will he not delight in the slightest suggestion from us that we would like to be with him? He's a thousand times more interested in being with us than we are with him. So we have peace because we're justified. We have access because we're justified. And the third thing we have is we have a boast. The last part of verse 2. Through whom we have access through whom we have come to have access by faith into this grace in which we have come to stand. And we boast at the hope of the glory of God. Your translations probably don't say boast, do they? They probably say something nice and churchy like rejoice or exult. Maybe celebrate. But no, I'm sorry. The word is boast. The word is brag. The word is stand up and shout and say, our God rocks and your God doesn't. This is, this, this is the picture from Isaiah the prophet. When he says to, when he says to people who were sucked into idolatry, let's talk about your idols here for a minute. You take a log and you cut it in half. And half of it you use to warm your house. And the other half you use to make a little godling for yourself. And you carve ears, but does it hear? No. You carve eyes, but does it see? No. Your gods don't do squat for you. Why are you worshiping them? No. We have a God that we can boast in. We have the kind of God who made the heavens and the earth. We have the kind of God who when he saw us in Egypt, when we couldn't do anything, anything for our sorry hides... He came down for us and he brought us out with a mighty arm and out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he brought us through the wilderness and he gave us a promised land. And when he, when we disobeyed, yeah, he sent us into exile. But what he's promised is that he's going to come again and there's going to be a new exodus, a new trip through the wilderness, a new journey into the promised land where there'll be a new temple and there will be glory and we will live in it. And what Paul believes has happened in Jesus' death and resurrection is that glory promise is being worked out for us. Paul believes, and he's going to talk about this in chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, that the redemption that begins in chapter 3, that we access by faith, that redemption is worked out in such a way that we have been brought out of our Egypt of sin. And in chapter 6, what our baptism, what our baptism pictures is that we cross, the, we cross over the boundary of death and we have union with Christ. And we're going to walk through the wilderness and there's, it's going to be a struggle. And we're not going to have to deal with the law in every respect in Romans 8, in Romans 7, I'm sorry. But in Romans 8, there's a glory that waits for us, the sufferings of which the sufferings of this world are just not worth comparing to. And he's going to get us all the way home. In the meantime, we've been given a spirit of adoption that allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. And one day we will have the full adoption when our bodies are made perfect. And we are going to boast. And there's the biblical imagery and then there are the images that we all have of the kind of celebration 
that, that this should bring to mind. One of my f- most favorite, no, my favorite image of celebration is Jeff's least favorite. It was 2004 when my Boston Red Sox brought it home. Yes. Now, my brother Jeffrey Jakes reminds me that they were from the, between the last time the Red Sox did that and when they did that in 2004, his beloved, what was that? This beloved, I can hardly even say the word, this team from New York had done that only 26 times. So Jeff has plenty of memories. Jeff has plenty of memories of this sort of celebration. I don't know. Orangewood volleyball, whatever. I think of Rocky running up the steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum and saying, yes, yes, yes. That's our picture. That's our picture. Yeah, and here's the deal. We're not just going to get across the finish line as far as Paul's concerned. We don't just boast that he made us just barely get over the finish line. Look at the way he finishes this paragraph. I'm not going to read the whole paragraph for you, but I want to read a few few verses at the end. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Not only that, but boasting. In other words, not only are we going to get across the finish line, saved by his death and by his resurrection, but as we go across the finish line, we're not going to be staggering and saying, I'm so glad that's over. It nearly killed me. No. What we're going to be saying, what we're going to be doing is juking and jiving and high-fiving one another and saying, our God rocks, their gods don't. And boasting in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have reconciliation. The peace that we have now, the access that we have now, are a promise of a boast that our God will show himself as reigning Lord and we will be in him and we will be pumped up as we go across the line. So convinced is Paul of this that it casts its light back on the present. Look at what he does back in verse 3. Remember the tail end of verse 2 is, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God, what he's going to do. But then verse 3, but not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions. Everything that comes our way that's not such a nice part of the story. Every tear, every hurt, everything that would push us away in God's hands is just a tool for taking us further up and further in. Look at the way Paul continues this boast, or spells out this boast. Not only this, but boasting we boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope, and hope does not 
put to shame. Your Bible probably says something nice and safe like disappoint. But the word is shame. Shame is when you feel publicly exposed. You've taken a chance. You've put your best out there. And it hadn't been enough. And everybody says, oh, look, he's just hanging in the breeze. She, look at her. What an idiot. She should have just played it safe. This is what he's saying isn't going to happen. When we get there at the end of the day, we're not going to be put to shame because all this stuff is not going to be able to separate us. All this stuff is just going to be ways that he's eliminating the stuff in our lives that keeps us from the goal. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. Listen to the way Paul ends chapter 8 where he does more boasting. What then will we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And the one who gave his only, who did not spare his only son, but on our behalf gave, but on all our behalf gave him over. How will he not with him give us all things? How will he not with him give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God who justifies? Who will condemn? Christ Jesus who died, but rather who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of the God, who's interceding on behalf, of, on behalf of you? Will he condemn us? No. What will separate us from the love of God? Will, what, what will separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 43, 23. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That rings kind of weird in this, in this portion. But here's what it means. Here's what it means. Yeah, life is tough. Life kicks us in the teeth. But because we belong to Christ... And because all of our sufferings are our being conformed to the full image of who he is, which includes not just the glories of his resurrection, but the fellowship of his sufferings, bring it on. Bring it on. I am willing to take my measure as one of those who are part of his, what Old Testament scholars like to call, his messianic people. That if trial and tribulation are to come my way, Let them have their best shot. They cannot take me out because I am his and he is doing a good thing in me. But in all these things, we more than conquer. Great word here. The verb comes from the same word that Nike takes its name from, which means victory. The verb is nikao. I overcome. I am victorious. And Paul puts in front of it a great preposition that works in English as well. It's hooper, or we do hyper. We hyper overcome. We more than kick, uh, we, we, we more than trounce our enemies. But in all these things, we hyper win through the beloved. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things that are, things in our circumstances, nor things that are going to be, things that we worry about might happen at 2 o'clock in the morning. 
nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know what sort of furnace you live in. I don't know how God has to personalize the challenges for you. All I know is that I've lived long enough to be able to say with some authority that there is nothing that God will allow to be thrown your way that is not something that you will be able to look back on either in this life or the next and boast and be able to say right there, right there is where his power was the greatest. I just want to close by telling you the brief story of my dad. East Tennessee hillbilly, got educated beyond his intelligence rather than doing what the rest of the kid boys did, either stay and work on the farm or go to work in the alcohol aluminum plant or declare their rebellion by going off and working in the railroad or starting a bar in in New Orleans. No, my dad decided he was going to show them all and he went off to school and got himself educated. So educated that he couldn't ever get the point of a free gift being given to him, life with God through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. For years and years and years after I became a Christian and then for years after my wife and I got married, we would talk with my dad and try to help him understand that it was as simple as receiving a free gift. On the very Thanksgiving weekend that we started to realize that he was starting to slide into senile dementia, we had this one last conversation in which he made it perfectly clear that he wanted nothing to do with this gospel. And then the dementia hit big time, and he went through tuberculosis, a hip replacement, and getting over all the drugs and the medication and just got darker and darker and darker. Finally, a few years after that, he got pneumonia that his doctor said, This is going to kill him. I don't think he's going to live through the night. And that night, just as I was getting ready to leave, my dad, this overeducated East Tennessee hillbilly who had no room in his life for God, started to call out, God, I want you in my life. I had started out the door. And I turned around and said, Dad, what's up? Brothers and sisters, something miraculous happened that night. God gave him a night of lucidity. God let him be. His dementia had reduced him to the mind of like a four-year-older. But for a few moments, he was a lucid four-year-older. And he was ready to hear the story. And he was ready to receive it and secure his place in heaven. I prayed with him and left that night saying, okay, Lord, if you want to take him, it's okay with me. Not that you were going to consult me, but, well, you know, you've had that. <laughs> We've all had that conversation. And I came back the next day, and the doctor said, something really amazing happened. Your dad's electrolytes have, they reversed overnight, and it looks like he's going to make it. And for another day, my dad could understand what he had done that night. And then his health did come back, but the fog descended again. And he couldn't remember it, but you know what? He was different. He had had always been a pretty grumpy, angry man, dissatisfied with his life, feeling like he was a failure. 
And from then on, he lived for two more years. And they were the most joyful years of his whole life. He was a thankful man. And if God can do that in, the, in a, a late octogenarian whom I had given up for dead, he can do anything in you and me. And you and I, again, we may not see it in this life. It may be in the next life before we can see it. But every detail, every incident, we will be able to look back on and say, in that we boast, in that our God rocked. He is good. As the worship team comes back, let me invite you to this table. At this table... God shouts his affection for you. This table where we picture the breaking, where in the breaking of the bread, we symbol Christ giving up his body. And in the, and in the sharing of the cup, we remember he shed his blood for our sins. We are reminded that he's not angry with us anymore. Not only that, because... We're invited to this table. We're, picked, we're given a picture of the access that we have all the time, 24-7, to our Father. And because of the forgiveness of our sins and his promise to get us home, we can boast. This will be a time in which we present our offerings as well as a response from ourselves to his offering of himself. And Before I pray, let me read some of the words that will be sung. And you're, this is a Michael Card song of invitation to the table. You're free to sing it along with us or you can just sit and listen. But here's the heart of the whole thing. Come to the table and see in his eyes the love that the Father has spoken and know you are welcome whatever your crime, though every commandment you've broken, for he's come to love you and not to condemn And he offers a pardon of peace. If you'll come to the table, you'll feel in your heart the greatest forgiveness, the greatest release. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, may we run to the table, for you have said it. Lord Jesus, as we present our offerings, we first receive in our hearts the wonder of the offering of your very self, a substitute for us in our lostness, and now our friend along the way. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.